All right, welcome. Grab a seat. Ah, man, I, I love that we get to do this. I was just talking with someone yesterday saying that uh, I don't always wake up on Sunday morning, feel like going to church, right? Did anyone else, uh, like, be nice to stay in bed? But I, I never regret going. It's always such a great experience to come and sing and listen to God's word and be with one another. And um, yeah, Kim was right. Yesterday was a, just a fantastic time with um, some people stepping into new partnership. And we did have 20 adults. We also had a cat that snuck into our building and made all the way downstairs into the basement. They were, it was trying to become a partner. We said, no, if we're going to start with animals. It's going to be dogs and not cats. So I'm just going to float that out there. Hey, it's, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. My name is Adam. I'm on the teaching team here, and though I'm on the teaching team, I'm not supposed to be teaching today. In fact, our lead pastor, Tim, is meant to be up here today, and he had a little bit of a, a medical crisis that I, I want to update you on this past week. Um, we were in a meeting on Tuesday morning and noticed Tim just kind of in pain and in discomfort, and he kept complaining about his side, and we as a staff team lovingly told him to get over it put some dirt on it. Let's go. Um, he came back the next day and it had deteriorated to the point where he was struggling to stand and walk and decided, um, I, I would say it, he decided to go, go to the emergency room, but it was probably Abby who decided it was time for him to go. And so they went to the emergency room at Emmanuel and they did some scans and they came back with some pretty shocking news that his spleen had ruptured which is a fairly significant thing. He was taken to surgery right away, and they kept him at ICU for a, for a few days. And, then, and it was kind of unexpected because typically, and, and I'm just learning this, I definitely don't know a lot about the medical field, but, but typically a ruptured spleen comes from some kind of tr- traumatic injury or uh, some kind of virus, and that doesn't seem to be the case with Tim. It was just kind of a, a puzzling thing and kind of came out of nowhere. And so he had, has been in the hospital and was released yesterday. Um, to the care of his family, and he is, he is home now. He is, he is doing better, um, and uh, I think still in some discomfort, but there are families and individuals caring for the Osbournes and taking them food and, and uh, meeting their needs. And so I thought, man, it'd be really appropriate for us to start our time this morning just, just by praying for Tim and praying for the Osbournes. So can you guys do that with me? Let's pray. Um, yeah, Father, I... Uh, I firstly just say I'm, I'm really grateful for Tim. I, I, I know him pretty well, and I know he's a man of, of character. Um, I know he's a man who, who loves his family, who loves this church, and who cares deeply about your mission in this city. And um, yeah, I, I just was taken aback this week when I, I saw him in an ICU, and, and just thinking, even for myself, of, of taking for, uh, for granted uh, the leader that you've sent us. And and how much we appreciate him and uh, just all that he means. And so I, I just thank you for him. I thank you for the Osborne family. They, they are a gift to this church. And um, I just pray for him this, this morning as he's uh, hopefully sitting on a couch, resting and recovering. And uh, just pray for peace on his heart, uh, for the, the things that, that might be vying for his attention, um, things that he leads and oversees, that, that he can entrust them fully to you and just rest and and use this time to Sabbath and to be with you. And, and I pray for him too, um, as I was thinking through how just out of nowhere this whole thing has come about, and it's such a, an inconvenient season as we as a church are pursuing this, this new vision and things that, that you're doing and, and just realizing that, that 
Tim is someone we, we got to pray for constantly, um, that you are protecting, um, that, that we're just aware that Satan would love nothing more than to, uh, to sideline him. And so we, we lift him up. We lift up their family. Uh, pray for, for peace in their home and pray for his comfort and his quick return. We thank you for him, and we thank you for this day. I pray as we open scripture, um, as we do each and every week, that, that you illuminate, that your spirit speaks to us um, beyond just our intellect, but, but stir in our hearts uh, for your word. And uh, we thank you in your name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for praying with me. Hey, uh, if you've got a Bible, um, why don't you go ahead and flip to First uh, Peter chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, you can probably get there on your phone. We have Bibles on the shelves, um, on the wings, that you're welcome to, to grab one, and you can keep it if you need a Bible. And 1 Peter's a really short book at the end of the New Testament, and if you didn't know this, I'm going to give you a Bible hack. At the beginning of your Bible is a table of consonants that has page numbers. It helps sometimes. I mean, mine happens to be page 1111. So if that helps you, great. Uh, but that's a handy place to find scripture. And so go ahead and turn to First Peter 3. And uh, I want to catch us up a little bit about where we are. This year, um, we have been in a, a long teaching series called The Story. And we, we at the beginning of the year, um, created a reading plan that, that all of us are, are um, welcome to participate in. And it's a, a daily reading plan of a chapter or two. And then on Sunday, the, the Sunday talk is coming from the previous week's reading plan and where we are in Scripture. And so specifically, the last handful of weeks, we've been in this book of 1 Peter. Now, the book of 1 Peter was originally written as a letter um, that was distributed to a handful of cities, to Jesus followers in those cities. And it's, it's written to kind of give them some identity of what it means to be a Jesus follower in, in, in a place where that's, that's not the, 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 the predominant culture. And, um, and so a lot of what, what Peter is writing and talking about feels somewhat countercultural. And, um, and, it, and in fact, it, it, it gives us a sense of identity and it gives these people a sense of identity. And just to recap, let's look at 1 Peter uh, 2, 4. And it says this. As you come to him, speaking about Jesus, these are, these are people who have put their, their faith in Jesus. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by human, humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter is, is helping to establish uh, for these Jesus followers in the city that, that they're a part of something larger, that they're a part of this larger community, and that there's all these implications of what it means to be a, a community surrounded or centered around Jesus. In the last few weeks, we've been in a section of First Peter uh, that's talking about living godly lives in a pagan society. And if I were to kind of break that phrase down, godly lives mean living lives where Jesus is the example. We're doing what he did, we're, we're, we're thinking what he thought, we're, we're pursuing a life that looks like his. In, in a pagan society, it's, it's kind of the opposite of that. It's, it's we're, we just do what we want. And, and so we've, we've been looking at what does it look like to live lives shaped by Jesus in a society, uh, in, in this pagan society. And, and we looked at what this means at a societal level. We looked at what this means at a vocational level when we encounter unjust, unfair suffering at a vocational level. How do we, how do we live as godly people? 
We talked about this in terms of marriage. We will be looking at this um, in the weeks to come, um, what it means for the church, for us to collectively uh, live godly lives um, in a, a pagan society. Um, and, and this book that he's given us, First Peter, is, it's not just a how-to guide to survival. He, he doesn't write and say, oh, this, this is how you can kind of blend into society. This is how you can be a godly person, but, but no one will know it, and so you won't catch any flack. This is how the church can, can kind of go under the radar and, and, and not rock the boat at all. In fact, his book is pretty revolutionary. His expectation is that as we're living godly lives in a pagan society, people around us are, are going to recognize and know, and they might even ask us about Jesus. So he's not giving us a how-to guide to blend in. In fact, he's saying this is what it means, and this is uh, a means of, of um, God making himself known through the way that we live our lives. And so we looked at what submission, likes in all, uh, submission looks like in all these different places, in society, in our workplace, in marriage, in the church. And today, I, I want us to shift our focus at what submission looks like towards Jesus. What does it look like for you and I to live submitted lives Submitted, meaning coming un, or yielding to the order of Jesus. And so we're going to start in First um, Peter three fifteen, and I'll read this passage through. It uh, it says this in fifteen. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So this passage begins in 15 by saying, in, in your hearts, kind of that, that center place, the truest place of who you are, in your hearts to revere Christ as Lord, to honor Christ as Lord. Now this word Lord, um, if, you've, if you've been around church or you sing, uh, see some of the songs that we sing, we, we kind of use that as a way of addressing Jesus, and, and maybe in our minds that can just be another, another name or another title, but, but there's pretty specific implications to this word. It, it, it actually communicates a sense of ownership, that, that, if, that if he is my Lord, I, I don't just relate to him, I, I find my belonging with him. I find my identity as, as being uh, his and, and, and revering and honoring his lordship over my life. There's, there's an invitation to submission to him as our Lord. And so why? Why are we, why is Peter writing this? Why is he inviting these readers and us to revere him, to honor him as not just our savior, not just the son of God, but, but our Lord, the one who we s- submit ourselves to? And there's a phrase, um, or, or maybe just a word, that, that you might hear if you've, if you've been around church, and if you've not, here's a great opportunity to learn what it means, but it's a, it's a word called the gospel. And, and the word literally means the good news, but it's a word that we use to describe the, the story of Jesus, the, 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 the fruit of his life. And in fact, all of scripture 
points to Jesus. There's, there's scripture in the Old Testament that was written hundreds of years before Jesus walked the earth that described who he would be and what he would be like and what God was going to accomplish through him. There's scriptures in the Old Testament that are foreshadowings that parallel to this saving Jesus who is going to come and who is going to bring freedom to his people. And then we read about him in the beginning of Matthew that, that even his, his conception is a, a miracle and that he is is going to be bo- uh, born to a virgin named Mary. And in John 1, we're told that, that he is the incarnation, which means he is the living flesh of the triune God, that, that, that God the Son came and brought on or took on flesh and walked among us. Uh, in Hebrews 4, we, we learn that, that Jesus, like you and I, was tempted. He says he was tempted in every way common to humanity, and yet he did not sin. He, he lived this perfect life as an example for us. We read about his teachings that were powerful, that, that, that caused pandemonium and chaos because of what he said. We read that he healed people, that, that he brought people back from the dead, and we read that he was arrested, put on trial, and convicted to death as an innocent man, that he went to the cross and died, the just for the unjust, to deal with the sins of all humanity. And then we read that he was raised back to life by the Spirit of God. And because of what he's done, this thing called the gospel, you and I now as broken people have access, have relationship with a perfect God. He's worth revering, right? This is why we submit to him as our Lord. This is why we submit to him and, and, and we, come under, we yield under his authority, under his rule because of who he is. And then in Romans 10, it tells us If we believe this story, if we believe in our hearts this gospel story about this man named Jesus and we confess it with our mouths, that that we are now recipients of that saving power, that we have been saved. And so when when I read that and I think about that, it makes sense in verse 15 that Peter says, when people ask you why you're so hopeful. Now, if, if we step back from this story and think about it logically for a minute, he's written this letter to a handful of cities of people who live in a land conquered by Rome. Okay, so, so at a society level, they're, they're not first-class citizens. Their lives are pretty much dictated to them. They're, there's restriction. There's, they're, they're not in a place necessarily of advantage. You would think in the society that they're in, they're not going to be the people of hope. They're going to be the people of frustration, of grief, of, of, of all these things. But yet Peter says, hey, when, when they ask you why you're such a hopeful person, be ready to answer them. Peter's acknowledging and helping them see that, that even if they face unjust suffering, Jesus' people exude hope because of this gospel story. That even in the face of suffering and frustration, and maybe that's something that we can relate with. Maybe there's, there's uh, in a room this size, certainly people here whose life circumstance doesn't necessarily look hopeful with finances, with health, or, or, or with whatever. And yet, because of this gospel story, we have a reason to be hopeful. This means for us that our submitting to Jesus as Lord, yielding to his order, becomes our message of hope to the world around us, becomes our message of hope that we are submitted to this king. He is worth revering. And so what does it look like to honor, to submit, and to revere our king? 
I want to look at, at two specific ways. Uh, there's a lot of ways that we honor Jesus and, and we revere him, but there's, there's two specific ones that Jesus himself demonstrated, that Jesus himself invited us into. And it's, it's two ways that, that we practically and that we, that we symbolically submit to his lordship. And if you're new to church, these might be foreign terms, and that's okay. We're going to take some time to walk through them. If you've been around church a long time, you're going to hear these terms, and they might sound a little bit like white noise because we've heard them so many times. I, I want to invite us, let's, let's sit in this invitation of, of what it means to submit to our Lord through these two practices. And it's simply this, baptism and communion. Baptism and, and communion. Now, I, I want to set them apart a little bit. Because they're, they're sacred things that we're invited into. Like I said, Jesus uh, established these, Jesus modeled these, Jesus invites us into these things. And, and I want to set them apart because as, as Christians, as, as, as a church, um, you, you know, we might have traditions. There's, there's ways that we do things. And, and if you're new and, and this is your first time here, if you hang around a little while, you'll find that, that Mosaic even has ways that it does things. And, and if you go to other places in the, in the country, in the world, that you, it will look different. I used to lead worship at a church in, uh, in New Mexico, and in that part of the world, when we would do worship, people got rowdy, They'd clap their hands and dance and sing, and, and it's, it was fun, and, and, and it was energetic and, and all that, and then my family, we moved to Portland, and the first church we went to, there was just candles and, and sad worship music. <laughs> I was like, okay, they're still both worshiping, right? I shouldn't say it was sad. That was just my impression of it. Um, <laughs> They're still both worshiping, but it's, it's, it's an expression of worship, but it looks totally different. And so we, we have customs that we have, that we have adopted as ways of, of honoring God and, and, and bringing glory to his name and, and even things that we do. Uh, Kim mentioned next week that we're going to be celebrating with families in child dedication. I love child dedication because sometimes when I get to do it, I get to hold the babies, and I love to hold babies. Um, and it's a beautiful thing that we do, and there's even places in scripture that kind of parallel that idea, but... But what we're talking about here is, is something a little more sacred. It's more sacred than, than our customs. We, we have customs that we, we live out each and every Sunday. Now prove it to you. Let's see if you're listening. Mosaic, it's time to give. There you go. That's, that's a custom for us, and it's a way that we, we acknowledge, oh, man, our, our God is generous, and we want to be generous, and this is a good thing that we're, that we're actually expressing generosity. But, but, but these two things... I want to hold them at somewhere that's, that's a little more sacred. These two expressions and ways that we get to submit to Jesus as Lord. And so we're going to look at them. First, we're going to look at, uh, at baptism. What is, what is baptism? If that's a new word for you and you're unfamiliar familiar with that, uh, baptism is the process of, of taking someone who's professed their faith in Jesus, dunking them underwater, and bringing them back up. It's weird. Just humanly speaking, it's a weird thing to do. That sounds like what a big brother does to their little brother, right? So why, why do we do this? Why, why do we go through this process? And, and we do it here on Sundays. We have a tank that's behind this wall. We, we filled up with warm water, and, and, and we do this thing. And so I want to look at why, why this matters, why this is sacred and it's significant. And to help us understand that, flip in your Bible to Romans chapter 6. This, uh, like the book of, of Peter is a letter that's also written to a church, and um, it gives us some insight of the significance behind this thing called baptism. This is Paul. He writes this. 
Well, what should we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live to it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We, therefore, were buried with him through baptism into death in order that, that just as Christ was raised from death through the glory of the Father, we, too, uh, may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like this, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like this. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. This act of baptism connects us with the cross of Jesus. This this act of baptism connects us to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. This act of baptism is how we acknowledge the cost of following Jesus. It says in this passage that that there is a part of us that is put to death, and and, and that's symbolic when we go under the water. There's there's a part of us that is is put to death, and and, and we read the words of Jesus when he calls people to follow him. He's, He's honest. He tells them, hey, I want you to be my disciple, but this is going to cost you something. This, th- th- there's going to be a death to this process. He says it in Mark 8, to take up your cross daily and follow after him, that, that in this process of, of submitting to him and surrendering to his lordship, there, there is something that, that I'm setting aside, that I am dying to, so that I can step into this new life that he offers. This is symbol, uh, symbolized in, in baptism that we are associating with the death. We are associating with the cross and the resurrection. Tim Keller is one of my my favorite pastors. He says this, any person who only sticks with Christianity as long as things are going his or her way is a stranger to the cross. That's that's kind of the heart of this book of Peter, is he's helping them realize you're going to suffer. You're going to go through hard times. You're going to go through unjust things, and and, and yet you've died to this part of yourself, and you've been made into this new creation. This idea that, that when we are, are, are baptizing, we are connecting to the cross, this acknowledgement of the cross. This has kind of been the filter um, that, that my wife and I have used um, for our kiddos when they want to get baptized. We've been in other churches before where the baptismal is like up here, and it looks like a hot tub, and they just want to get in there. And they're like, yeah, let's do this thing. Baptize me. And, and we've kind of used this as a filter of, of, of can they, can they, do they get this? Do they get why they're doing this? That in and of themselves, there is a falling short of God's glory, that there is a need to die to that sinful nature and to have the new life of God's spirit in them. Can they get that? And as they've been able to articulate it, that's kind of been the sign for us. Like, okay, this is now their decision. They're able to now express something that they believe in their hearts. And so baptism, it connects us to the cross of Jesus it, it also represents new life. It says in, in uh, Romans 4, 6, just as Christ was raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, we too may live in a new life. Baptism represents that we are born, that we are born into a new life. 
What does that mean? Do we come out of the water and look different? Imperfections go away. My, my uh, tendency towards sin goes away. No. What that means is I am born into this new relationship with Jesus. And because of who he is, I know who I am and who I'm called to be. And because of this relationship, when I veer off of that, I'm not, oh, shoot, returning to who I truly am. I'm veering from who I truly am. And Jesus invites me back to my identity in him, where I am dead to sin and alive to him. That, that, that from that process, when, when I make mistakes and, and when I step away and I don't yield to his order and I don't submit to him, there's, there's grace that's sufficient for his sons and his daughters. He invites us into that new life. This is what baptism represents. Coming out of that water the same way Jesus conquered death and stepped out of a grave, we're stepping into this new, this new life. Baptism is also our public profession of devotion to Jesus. It's how we tell the world around us, this is, this is who I am. This is what I believe. You know, Jesus, in, in, in Matthew 28, um, he's walked the earth. He, people have seen him teach. They've, they've seen him do miracles. They saw him go to the grave, um, dead. They, then they see him raised back to life. And, and he's done all these things, and he's getting ready to go back to be with the Father in heaven. And he tells his disciples, hey, go into all the world. Make disciples of all nations and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is prescriptive. This is what he wants his, his Christ followers to do. And, and yet he's, he's also modeled this for them. Look at this in, in Matthew chapter 3, starting in 13. This is at the beginning of Jesus, kind of what we call public ministry. He hasn't taught yet. We don't know of any miracles that he's done yet. He's, I guess, kind of been under the radar, and, and this, he's getting ready to start, and this is kind of his first step into this. And it says in 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, well, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. And Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this and to fulfill all righteousness. There's a reason that Jesus is doing this. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit descending like a dove and like a lightning on him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love and in whom I am well pleased. Jesus modeled this public profession. He modeled for us what submission looks like and this beautiful picture of, of relationship in, in, in the triune God where, where the father is looking down at his son who at this point that we know of hasn't done any of the stuff that, that we attribute to his name and yet he says, this is my son, I love him and, and I'm well I'm well pleased. So my, my invitation for us, when we think about this, this practice of submission that we've been given in baptism, my invitation is, is for a few of us. If, if, if you're here and you've not been baptized yet, let's do it. We're, we're ready. The time's now. We, we have this gathering that we do once a year. It's the Sunday before Thanksgiving, and it's probably my favorite gathering of the year because it's, it's one of the times that we do baptism. And this year, it's the 24th, November 24th. And if, if you're here and, and you've made that profession, you've heard the gospel of Jesus and say, yes, I believe it, I confess it, that's who I am, let's, let's make this statement together. 
Let's make this public profession. The other invitation I have is if, if you're here and uh, maybe you're like me and was baptized a few years ago, like over 20 years ago for me, um, I want to invite you to, to think about the significance of that moment and that day. That, that, that it's possibly more than just something that happened in your life. There was a, uh, an event that happened on that day, and maybe I have a picture of it, and I'm glad, and I'm grateful, but, but that, that possibly it's something that, that, that actually is active in your life more than, than you might recognize. Let me give you an example. On, on September 7th, 2002, um, Dana, my wife, and I stood in a room full of people looking at us like you're looking at me, in our fanciest clothes, and she said some words, I said some words, a preacher said some words, and then pff, we were married. That's, that's the last time we've been married. That's our last wedding. It was like 17 years ago. But the effects of that wedding are present in my everyday life. Right? Like the, like the event might have been in the past, it might be back there, but, but the effects are present. And, and as I've been thinking about this, I, I've been thinking about my, my, my baptism, that moment where I said, I, I want to die to what it is to be sinful and, and to be broken and, and to be raised, raised again into a new life and to make this profession. And, and it's something that, that I get to look at in, in seasons where, man, I, I feel broken. I feel jaded. I do feel sinful. And, and, and I get to look at that and say, yes, but, but that represents the power of God and what he has done, not me. That represents his sufficiency and his grace and not my ability. And I get to reference that over and over and to say, yes, but, but God has done this. But God has done this. And so this, this gift, this thing that God has given us that seems so strange, we just dunk people in water in public places, is actually a very powerful thing. And, and Jesus' people have been doing this for a couple thousand years. The other response that we're given as a way of submitting to Jesus as Lord is, is communion. The communion table. Now, this, this is something that's, that's common because it's up here each and every Sunday that we gather. Virtually every Sunday um, of a year, we, we have this. And yet it's something that's really uncommon because of what it represents. That it represents Jesus' broken body and Jesus' spilt blood. It represents suffering. It represents Jesus submitting. It represents cost. In our passage that we read in 1 Peter, it said that, that the unjust died for the just to deal with the sins of all humanity. That this table represents all of those things, and yet it also represents new life and beauty and the power of, of God to resurrect what is broken and what is, what is gone and dead. Let's flip to 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read these words about communion. And then here in a few moments, we're, we're going to participate in this act of submission. It says this, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he, give, and he had given thanks. He broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took a cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim his death, which is also proclaiming his resurrection. We're proclaiming his sufficiency when we come to this table. 
We're yielding to his order, his plans of bringing us life. We're yielding to that rather than to our own means of life. Rather than to our own means of fixing ourselves, we're yielding and submitting to him and to his power. When we come to this table, we're acknowledging that he is sufficient. Where I lack, he doesn't. Where I am broken, he is consistent and he is sufficient. We're engaging in his grace when we come to this table. Even the word communion, it, it, it's the same word that we get communal. There's meant to be an interactive piece to this where I'm not just coming and going through a function, but I'm coming and praising and acknowledging what my Savior has done for me. Further down in, in 1 Corinthians 11, it goes on to say uh, in, in verse 28 that, that before we come to the table, that, that we have to examine our heart and to approach this table with, with, with a right heart, with an honest heart in an authentic place. What does that mean? Does that mean we have to fix ourselves before we come to the table? Well, no. That's the whole point of the table. We can't fix ourselves. The examining of our hearts is coming with authenticity, clear-minded of what this means. And so sometimes examining my heart, it, it leads me to repent. It leads me to say, ah, God, I stepped out of the identity that you called me into. I stepped out of the identity of this new life that you have for me. Can, I, I'm sorry, I, I repent. Sometimes the examining of our heart looks like unforgiveness that, that we're holding. That, that, that this relationship that's broken, this relationship that, that right now I'm frustrated and I'm angry and, and, and I need to make that right. And, and as I'm examining my heart, that's what's going on in my heart right now. And, and so this invitation is for us to come to this table with complete authenticity of who, of who God is and who we are and this exchange that we remember what he has done through the power of his blood and his body for us. This is communion. So we're given these two sacred things of baptism and communion. And like I said, those might be completely foreign to you um, or those might kind of sound like, like white noise, but, but they're important enough that Jesus hasn't asked us to do these things. They're important enough that, that he's actually modeled them for us. So this morning, um, I'm going to invite our, our band to come up, and, and we're going to participate in, in one of these acts of worship and submission um, through communion. And as they're coming forward, I actually want to read a, a passage of invitation to us, and I want to invite you to stand. And uh, for a moment, just stand with um, your eyes closed. And as we come to this table that's, that's been set before us, um, <laughs> these tables, yes, have been set by volunteers, but, but, but the meaning behind this table is set for us for Je uh, by Jesus. And he says this, all things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.